2: Hi and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm Adam B. Levine and this is episode 424. Today on the show we'll be discussing a couple of challenges standing in the way of broad adoption to Layer 2 Lightning Network technologies and some of the ways those problems are being addressed, mostly at the wallet level. Junior producer James contributed to that segment. This episode is sponsored by eToro, Purse.io, and Brave.com. If you'd like to sponsor the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, you can email me at adam at Today we're joined by the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Stephanie Murphy, Hi. Jonathan Mohan, Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to everyone for being here and to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's session. We'll kick things off with the Lightning Network. Built on top of Bitcoin, it's designed to ease friction, reduce costs, and in many ways to re-enable the global person-to-person transaction, or even the buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin use case, without clogging up the Bitcoin blockchain with billions of distinctly unremarkable drink purchases. In practice, Lightning is a project under rapid development, still mostly suited for enthusiast users more than your mom's caffeine habit. But from the looks of it, that's temporary, as more of the challenging or technical elements are being resolved, or at the very least, smoothed over. Stephanie, let's start with you. You've been accepting Bitcoin payments as part of your work for years and years at this point. Are you using Lightning yet? What's your experience been?
1: (laughs) So I'm a little ashamed to say that, no, I'm not using Lightning yet. Just using... Non-lightning solutions works well for me. In case anyone doesn't know, I'm a voice actor, but I also, you know, accept payments from my clients in cryptocurrency. I've been doing that for many years. If it's not broken, don't fix it. The payments that I accept tend to be in the range where a transaction fee on the regular Bitcoin network is not really that big of a deal. So it's not like I'm accepting lots of micro payments for video views or something like that. That's more of a use case for Lightning as I see it. But with the payments that are being sent to me, it's more like, you know, a client hires me for a video voiceover and they pay me. And then maybe like two months later, they might hire me for another one and then they pay me again. And it's going to be in the hundreds of dollars range rather than, you know, in the few pennies range. And so it just doesn't make sense to try to sort of set up a Lightning solution. Now, I know it's getting easier and it's getting more user friendly but it's not to the point for me yet where it's user-friendly enough for me to spend the time on it. And I I remember, Adam, that you were doing this experiment. Was it a year ago or more?
2: We're still doing it. (laughs) I just stopped
3: talking about it.
1: Okay, so talk about the experiment that you're doing. This is actually one thing that kind of put me off from trying to set up a lightning-based solution for my business was just that it seemed like something that was beyond my skill level technically.
2: (laughs) It's definitely... I guess at this point, a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago at this point, we set up a lightning node and a lightning tipping service that allowed people to send us lightning tips. And then things got busy and I actually stopped posting about it because the reality of it was that we were bringing in less than the cost of running the node and stuff associated with it. And it's not that nothing was coming in. Again, like it was kind of an experiment, so we didn't really care. But yeah, definitely like the critical mass doesn't seem like it's there, certainly two years ago. Today, we're getting closer to that.
1: I mean, that's okay. Like when I first started using Bitcoin way back in the early days, there wasn't really a cost associated with setting it up, but it was definitely like a little bit of a curve to get over, right, for activation energy. But in the beginning, maybe you could say it almost wasn't worth it, but then it became worth it over time. All you have to do is... HODL, right?
2: (laughs) One of the interesting things that you said there, Stephanie, is that the types of transactions that you're doing don't really make a lot of sense. And that's actually something that has been resonating with me as well. Like we pay contractors in Bitcoin as part of the show. I just paid the editor for the next couple of episodes. And I think that paying the standard fee through Electrum was like 15 cents or 10 cents or something like that to send a couple hundred dollars. So, you know, the other thing is that Lightning got started at this time where Bitcoin fees were just going through the roof. And so there was a real kind of choice and a real incentive pushing people there. But over the last couple of years, as capacity has increased and as usage of the main chain hasn't necessarily decreased, but as it's become kind of less important, as people more think about layer two solutions and things like that, it seems like fees have gone down to the point where now the incentive isn't so great unless you really are talking about those microtransaction use cases. One of the other things that is interesting about the early lightning network is that we're kind of seeing a repetition of the earned press cycle that we saw with early cryptocurrency and early Bitcoin, where there was real tangible sort of press or promotional value to saying, hey, we now accept Bitcoin, because that was like a super rare thing early on. And it's interesting, just the other day, we saw Square Crypto, I think it was announced they're coming out with this Lightning software development kit to make it easier to integrate Lightning into things. And Square Crypto is the crypto sort of division of the Square payment processing company. And so again, there was a good amount of earn press that kind of came off of that announcement, even though really what they're announcing isn't just an open source software development kit.
1: I mean, I think this is definitely where things are headed. I don't know. I mean, every person who sets something up, a way for customers to pay with Lightning is helping pave the way for more and more adoption if people find value in it. That's the other thing, like maybe it just doesn't make sense except for certain use cases. Maybe we haven't discovered the best use cases for Lightning payments yet.
2: I think that we're still just so early on it. We're now reaching the point where the tools are starting to get to the place where we could actually see something like this happen. And the move by Square Crypto seems like it's pretty indicative that we're going to see a lot of support for the system as it moves forward, however that happens for the technical side of this, let's start with channel management. Andreas, can you set the table for us on what the point is of channel management and what the challenges for less technical users are in the current state of things?
3: Lightning is a peer-to-peer network where you connect with each peer via channel. And a channel is a metaphor. It's basically a smart contract where you have a shared balance with the other party. And payments are transmitted over Lightning Network by exchanging effectively promises or secrets that allow you to propagate payments and connect channels together. And so on Lightning, you have a channel with another party. Let's say I have a channel with you, Adam. And on that channel, we each have a balance on our side of the channel. So let's say I have half a Bitcoin on my side of the channel and you have a third of a Bitcoin on your side of the channel. And that means I can take from the balance that's on my side of the channel and send it to you. And you can take from the balance that's on your side of the channel, and send it to me, and we can send balance back and forth between us. If we wanted to propagate the payment further, I would send some of my balance over to you. You would then, on a separate channel, send some of your balance over to somebody else who would forward it on to somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. So every node on the Lightning Network has these channels with other nodes. And the more channels you have and the more capacity you have in those channels, the more payments you can do. The easier it is to find someone who's connected to someone who's connected to someone who's connected to the person you want to pay. So that basically is something that in the long run, should disappear from the user experience and in the short run does not. So right now you get to see the gnarly channel reality that's happening on your lightning wallet. And in the long run, preferably that's something that your node can do automatically and you don't need to worry about it.
2: Okay. So if a user is brand new to the lightning network, how do they go about receiving
3: that first payment though? Well, that's one of the challenges. And Today, there's a harsh distinction between payments that are made on-chain, on blockchain, or traditional Bitcoin transactions, if you like, and payments that are made off-chain through the Lightning Network. And so in establishing a new channel, you have to make an on-chain Bitcoin transaction that takes a while to settle. And if you create a funding transaction into your Lightning Wallet and then create an outgoing channel, you'll be able to send other people payments through the Lightning Network, but they will not be able to send you payments because there is no channel with incoming capacity. So that asymmetry can cause some user experience headaches. In the future, I anticipate that the most common way that people will fund their Lightning Wallet isn't through an on chain transaction, but instead by withdrawing money from, say, an exchange or another wallet directly into a new channel with inbound capacity. And that kind of technique, which you could call a submarine swap or a lightning withdrawal, would be the most common way people will have incoming capacity.
0: Well, that's also how a lot of altcoins have done their migrations, where they say deposit the ERC20 receipt onto this exchange. And the exchange will just snapshot balances and then allow you to withdraw into this entirely different protocol the tokens that the ERC-20 was a receipt representing. And that user experience has been how a lot of the blockchains that did a sale in Ethereum and then launched their own protocol actually did their migration.
3: Yeah, so essentially it's a form of atomic swap. I think in the long run, every transaction that happens on-chain will be a hybrid transaction that also does channel management on the Lightning Network, whether that's through a submarine swap, which is basically an atomic swap between on-chain and off-chain funds, or if it's simply a transaction where you're trying to pay someone on-chain and you're also using the opportunity to do some channel management in the background. And of course, preferably these things are managed by your wallet in such a way that you don't see any of these interactions. We're gradually seeing Lightning wallets that do these things in the background hiding all of the details so you don't even need to think about channels and how those work.
2: So on the subject of wallets, our new junior producer, James, dug into kind of some of the options that are out there and how two wallets in particular are trying to deal with this issue and the positives about that and the negatives about it too. So let's start by talking about Phoenix Wallet. Phoenix Wallet is made by Async. They're also the makers of the Eclair Wallet, which was one of the early Lightning slash Bitcoin wallets that offered kind of a more advanced or a technical approach, you know, really what, Andreas you were talking about, the being able to kind of see all of the how everything's working behind the scenes and interact with it through the wallet at a pretty deep level.
3: And I don't think that was really a choice. It was more, there was no way to hide all of those details. So all of the early Lightning wallets put you directly under the hood because no one had found a way yet to close the hood and keep the wallet working. And I kind of flip it. I'd say Phoenix is the first wallet that allows users to close the hood and ignore some of the inner workings.
2: It definitely seems like we've entered a new era of thinking about how you do wallets in the world of Lightning. It started being Bitcoin first with Lightning layered on top, and it looks like we're kind of shifting that, where it's really about Lightning first and then Bitcoin kind of in the background because you can't not.
1: Yeah, and this is like a natural progression, I think. You know, at first you're going to get the users who really know exactly how to look under the hood and they're going to be the first ones using it. But then in order to add more people onto that, you need to make it a little bit more user-friendly. But the conversation we want to have about this, about the trade-offs between user-friendliness and security, all the benefits of something like Lightning, privacy, and etc.
2: How hard is it to use the thing? Do you need to understand channel management? in order to do channel management.
3: And I think the major trade off there is between self custody and third party custody, which has always been the trade off in every Bitcoin wallet since the beginning. The easiest wallet to use is one where you're not in control. The third party custodial wallet is always easier. If you just give up all of the responsibility and control, it's easier. And the same thing is playing out in lightning as has played out in Bitcoin before.
2: So with Phoenix, Async is essentially taking that away with the aim of being a more user-friendly wallet for the end user, really something that's kind of more mom and pop style if we're even getting close to that.
3: But it's still a full custody wallet. So this is key. So Phoenix is kind of squaring the circle. It's giving you the opportunity to have complete self-custody, your keys, your coins, but with some of the details of how it interacts with the network and channels looking as easy as a third-party custodial wallet.
1: I just would like to understand how it is sort of like both your keys, your coins, and then also non-custodial at the same time.
3: So it's your keys, your coins, you have custody of the keys, and the wallet automatically does some channel management, and it uses some of their Lightning nodes in order to do some of the routing, pathfinding, and channel management functions automatically in the background. So, for example, it will automatically establish outgoing channels from your node and will handle incoming channels by creating incoming liquidity for you. So you don't need to worry about that. But the keys for signing the transactions, both Bitcoin and Lightning transactions, are on your mobile phone. You have custody of them. They do not have custody of the keys. That compares favorably to, for example, the most popular Lightning wallet so far, which has been Blue Wallet, where it's a custodial solution, where you do not have control of the keys. The easiest way to deliver the Lightning experience, where you can make Lightning payments and receive Lightning payments, is where you're not running the node and you don't have access to the keys. Effectively, you have a thin user interface in front of their keys.
1: That's really interesting that Blue Wallet has been the most popular Lightning wallet to date and you don't have control over the keys.
3: It's exactly the same as Coinbase custodial solutions being the most popular way to onboard new users because it simplifies the experience by taking away custody of the keys.
1: Do you know of anyone who starts out using a wallet like Blue Wallet or maybe Coinbase as their Bitcoin wallet or other cryptocurrencies and then goes more in depth and like changes over to a wallet where they do have more self-custody and more control?
3: Absolutely. If you look at some of the Reddit groups, Bitcoin beginners, R-Bitcoin and others, you will see on a daily basis people struggling with this fundamental idea. And I think a lot of that comes from the power of the Not Your Keys, Not Your Coins slogan. Because people repeat that online and they say, well, I understand, not your keys, not your coins. Now, how do I make it actually happen? So I have this wallet on Coinbase or I have this wallet on this other exchange. I understand that's not my keys. How do I get my own keys? And then people suggest, oh, you could use this wallet or that wallet. And they go through this quite painful and often terrifying experience of taking responsibility, knowing that one slip, one mistake can be disastrous. And it's a scary experience the first time you make a backup and withdraw money from a custodial wallet into your own wallet and now have all of the responsibility and control and all of the knowledge that you can get up quite easily and lose your money. So yeah, that's happening all the time. I think as people go through the first steps and they get a bit more comfortable and they start understanding the terms and they start recognizing what a Bitcoin address looks like, and they start reading and listening and hearing the culture of open blockchains and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and they get the idea of not your keys, not your coins, then they try to take control.
1: Yeah, to me, this seems like a good thing, that there is sort of this staircase of, if you will, at the bottom, there's like the really user-friendly wallets that are just for anyone to dip their toes in and just have an experience using this technology even though it's not the full experience because they're not actually in custody of their own keys but then if they get a little bit more interested and they're willing to go through the process to learn they can take a step up the staircase and use a wallet that gives them a little bit more responsibility and a little bit more control over holding their own funds and then you know they can just keep going if they want up to the very top of the staircase and most people stay at the bottom but then you can get off at basically any level you want and Find your personal balance between user-friendliness and ultimate responsibility, ultimate control.
3: I love this metaphor of a staircase. It's the self-sovereignty staircase, right? At the top, you've gone all out. You're running your own node. You're doing manual coin joins and off your hardware wallet, multi-sig, cold storage, using partially signed Bitcoin transactions, (laughs) etc. And at the bottom, you're like, I bought me some Bitcoin on Coinbase. And
1: it's okay, and everything in between is fine. <laughs> I wasn't sure if the staircase should go up or down, but then I was like, no, if you're getting more in control of your own funds, you're ascending to the level of the gods. You're like going up into heaven
0: <laughs> stephanie, it's it's only going up because there are no full nodes in hell. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Also, because if you trip, you tumble down the staircase.
1: <laughs> right. If the staircase was going down into the basement, you could say you're falling down the rabbit hole of privacy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> if only it was that easy.
1: But I was thinking, like, it takes effort to actually learn to go up a step. And so I think the staircase should go up because if you've climbed to the top, you've climbed. You've actually put in the effort to learn how to do this. And
3: and it's easy to fall.
1: <laughs> it's yep. easy to fall, yes. What if there was a better user experience for browsing the internet? A way to take back your online privacy, prevent creepy ads from tracking you all around the internet, save on battery life and data. What if it was easy to switch to and completely free to download? And it even had a built-in option to support your favorite content creators while doing your normal online activities. Well, now there is a better user experience for browsing the internet. Brave is the web browser reimagined. It gives you unmatched speed, security, and privacy. And Brave even allows you to opt in to earn rewards, which you can use to support your favorite content creators. Go to brave.com slash ltb and switch to Brave today. It's super easy to switch to Brave, and Brave is free to download and use. Give it a try. That's brave.com slash ltb. Brave.com slash ltb. We'd like to thank eToro for sponsoring this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Why use eToro? eToro is a large, well-established, U.S.-regulated trading platform that has over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. eToro offers powerful trading tools made simple. You can create a diverse crypto portfolio, get access to smart charts and analysis on every asset, and eToro also has social features and the opportunity to practice and learn with a virtual trading mode eToro offers low spreads, no commissions, and no hidden fees. Why wait? Getting started takes just minutes at eToro.com. That's e-t-o-r-o.com. Crypto assets are volatile, and trading them carries risk. Please trade responsibly.
0: To give credit where it's due to people, it's not just about ability or knowledge, but it's also about fear and anxiety. And so you look at where the most number of normies are using a blockchain technology, and it's where the technology becomes trivialized to the point where touching it isn't a moment of fear or anxiety. Like even now, when I touch crypto, I have low levels, but they're there, of fear and anxiety in doing it. It's just how much I have. And so you look at like Doge, or you look at CryptoKitties, and it's where you make the thing so jovial that even in using it, there's no fear or anxiety underlying your usage of it. Where you get like tremendous user adoption. And so, like, we look at normies looking at like not your keys, not your coins. And it's like, do I really need to have as a subtext of buying a coffee an underlying notion of fear or anxiety in trying to do it? (laughs) So, like, it's not just about responsibility, but the, the emotional fear and anxiety component of what that responsibility entails as a user experience and why someone would want to even touch it or use it or engage with it.
1: But you could also say, Jonathan, that it's good to have a little bit of fear and anxiety. I mean, not to the point where it drives you nuts. But for example, when you get in a car, you should always have that in the back of your mind to keep yourself safe, that it is possible to crash this car. So you should not get behind the wheel if you really aren't safe to drive.
0: Yeah, but it's a little bit different because in this space is so distributed. So there are different actors saying different things, and then it becomes this Metacognition issue of who should I listen to that's an authority in this space. But Lightning and the people building on it are explicitly saying this is reckless. Don't put any money in it. Don't use it for anything that you can't see entirely gone. And all of Ethereum, you open up the terminal, this is experimental technology. All funds are at your loss. You shouldn't be using this for anything but an educational purpose. At least at the times I opened up it, the first couple of years, that was the warning that came on.
1: Yeah. And some people listen to that
0: and some people don't. (laughs) Yeah, but the ones who don't listen to that because the other side are saying take responsibility and overcome that fear are also told, well, you goofed off, it was your fault, and we told you you shouldn't have really put any money in it anyway. And I'm not saying it's people being contradictory. I'm just saying there's so many different communities that all have qualified opinions that are people in the space saying contradictory things that you don't know what percentage you should listen to or not or feel like there's no winning in trying to engage in the space with. When I try to send a Bitcoin transaction, there's that emotional experience that we need to overcome. And emotions are irrelevant to reality. It's just what they perceive. I think a lot of the wallets that we're looking at now, you just, even as a crypto person, have fear in even trying to use it. And so I think the next wallet we would talk about actually takes a little bit of the trustlessness away, but provides a little bit more of that managed service, which could actually reduce somewhat the actual real risk, but a large percentage of the perceived risk and reduce that fear. So I'm really excited about solutions that do a little bit more managed services for you because it's not so much about making Bitcoin less trusted, it's about bringing people in fully trusted world a little bit into an in-between state. The wallet that Jonathan's talking
2: about is the Zap wallet and then the Olympus service, which has recently been announced, but we're not going to talk about that for a
3: little while. We still have a bit more to go on Phoenix Wallet. I was thinking that this isn't necessarily always a case of self-custody or no self-custody. It's not as simple as that. And there are degrees to this as the stairs on the staircase analogy that Stephanie used. I think from my perspective, one of the interesting things that happens is that even a custodial lining wallet is better in many ways than a custodial Bitcoin wallet they're not equivalent. And the reason they're not equivalent is because you do gain a lot of the other advantages in terms of liquidity and availability of funds and low fees, speed of execution, and privacy that you gain from the Lightning Network that you don't have on Bitcoin. In the case of moving from a custodial Bitcoin wallet to a custodial Lightning wallet, You now have the ability to do Lightning payments that happen on the Lightning network and enhance the liquidity, availability, and robustness of the Lightning network, even for payments between the same provider. Whereas when you have a custodial Bitcoin wallet, then a lot of the transactions you're doing are happening on a SQL database. And with Lightning, there's no reason to do that.
2: All right, so let's take a more specific look at how this new wallet actually works and is solving that problem. I'm going to use Stephanie, you as the new user, and Andreas, I'm going to use you as the user who's already using Lightning in this example.
1: Okay, cool. I'm up for it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So when Stephanie, a new user who's just installed Phoenix Wallet, wants to be paid by Andreas, she will create an invoice on her phone just like any other wallet. Andreas will then scan that QR code, send the payment, and it'll look just like any other Lightning transaction to Andreas. If Stephanie currently has channels open with enough inbound capacity, then it'll complete just like any other Lightning Network transaction. But what happens when there's not enough inbound capacities, as we've been discussing, or no channels at all that connect these two? This is where Phoenix differs. Phoenix Wallet offers no channel management to the end users. It's all done under the hood. The wallet only connects to an async node. And async, again, is the company that actually creates the wallet, initially through what they call a fake channel. And when an incoming payment is detected by async, The, quote, routing hint that was contained in the QR code points to Stephanie's wallet through this fake channel. So Stephanie then gets notified that she has an incoming payment and is asked if she would like Async to open a channel on her behalf and push her the balance due. Now, this isn't free. This actually does kind of centralize the service a little bit since now Stephanie is only really communicating with the network and receiving value through the network through this Async node. And so there's actually a cost associated with it, which is a half a percent of the amount received.
1: Ooh, that could
2: be steep. It could be steep. But again, from a convenience standpoint, you compare it to a credit card, you compare it to even, you know, something like a bank wire, and chances are pretty good it's competitive at least for what is very clearly a kind of managed service as we've been discussing.
1: So to me, it sounds like this is a classical lightning transaction on Andreas's side, but on my side, it's more like a custodial kind of wallet transaction.
2: It's not really custodial. Custodial's the wrong word here.
1: Okay, not custodial, but like a managed experience, a curated experience, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Typically, it would cost you money to do this. That's the thing that's different here. You have to have money in order to receive money in the system. And so what it's trying to solve here is to minimize that challenge.
3: Essentially what it's doing, it's wrapping a service that already exists on Lightning in a user interface that hides this service and makes it easier to use. But already, if I want to get incoming payments into my Lightning node, someone has to open a channel. Now, traditionally, this can happen a number of ways. One way is the first person who wants to make a payment to you opens a channel that's slightly larger than the payment they want to make. And after they've opened the channel, they push that payment to you. So effectively, they've made an on-chain transaction in order to make their first Lightning transaction to you. But an alternative to this is to basically rent liquidity. So what you can do is you can go to a service, and there's a few out there that do the same thing, where you can give it your node's public key and say, hey, I need some inbound liquidity. And they say, well, how much do you need? I need a million sats for three months. And they'll open a channel to you for a million stats of inbound capacity to keep that channel open for three months. And you pay a fee to rent that capacity. And that fee represents a percentage of the capacity that is the time value of money. Now, this is obviously a very competitive market because the cost of doing this isn't that high. So other than the time value of money, and that varies on your perception of the Lightning Network, Opening a channel like that and keeping it in a hot wallet basically reflects the operating costs of running a Lightning node. And so you can see almost immediately that there would be sufficient competition, this being a completely open market where you can ask anybody to open an inbound channel to you. That would drive the price of this service down pretty fast, the more common it became. What's lacking at the moment is a mechanism for advertising and brokering such services automatically. Because if you think about it, there's no reason why your wallet can't go out and ask for this service from a a zillion providers, get the best price and negotiate an inbound channel based on a variety of parameters and pay for it automatically. The difference here is because there's no protocol to do that, essentially the wallets like the Phoenix Wallet are bundling that service in their wallet and they're giving you a single provider service.
1: And they're able to charge more for it. And they're able to charge
3: more for it. Otherwise, you can go out and do it manually at a lower cost than half a percentage point. And theoretically, in the long run, and this is one of the main advantages of the Lightning Network, is this is precisely the type of micropayment service that is programmable That you wouldn't want your wallet to negotiate automatically. So when it comes to buying liquidity on the Lightning Network, what better way to pay for that than with a Lightning payment? Uh, You can basically rent it by the day. You could even stream money for that kind of payment.
1: I really like the way you describe that, Andreas, as renting liquidity because that does solve a problem for a user like me who is inexperienced and may not know how to do that. And also, there's no automatic protocol to do this, and for your wallet to just look for the best price on being able to rent that liquidity and then just automatically do it. And so this wallet has solved that problem. And that's where we're at currently.
3: Yes. And it's a full stack integrated solution to that problem rather than a market-based solution to that problem. But it's certainly, you know, if you're showing the demand for this, it's pointing the way for what people might develop in the future.
2: So a couple of notes before we move on. Phoenix is a non-custodial wallet. Phoenix claims to be trust minimized, but not trustless, because as we've mentioned, although it is real lightning network transactions, there is that kind of quasi centralized element where in order to use this service, you have to actually go through an async node. And what happens if an async node goes down and that's not available? Does that mean that the wallet doesn't work? These are questions that will kind of come up as time goes on. Phoenix actually runs a full Lightning node directly on the phone itself. It's not using some type of connection to a backend server. It's actually keeping that on the phone, which is kind of interesting. Phoenix also offers no on-chain balance for Bitcoin. All Bitcoin that you put into the wallet, regardless of if you're getting it from main chain or if you're getting it from the Lightning network itself, are contained within channels, which is also an interesting and perhaps a first within the space.
3: So I think in the beginning of the Lightning Network, people talked about locking your funds in Lightning channels. And people talked about that as if there is a cost and a reduction of availability of your funds. So in order to use Lightning, your funds need to be in channels. And when you're putting them in channels, depending on the reliability of your channel partner, if they unilaterally disappear or close the channel you will have to wait for a timeout that is between 1 and 3 days to get a refund transaction and get your funds back on chain and you have to deal with an on-chain fee to do an additional transaction to close that channel so there is an element of risk and cost there depending on your channel partner but i think increasingly we're beginning to shift that idea because if you think about it putting funds into a lightning channel actually makes those funds much more available. They're now available to do very, very low fee, near instantaneous, immediately settled, very private, very fast microtransactions. So from that perspective, you've increased the availability, liquidity, versatility, utility, and velocity of the funds that you've put in the channels. So are you locking funds when you put them into lightning channels, or are you unlocking them from the molasses, slow, on-chain experience.
1: Yeah, to me, this sounds exactly like priming a gas pump or something like that, (laughs) or a water line. (laughs) Maybe there's a little bit of liquid in the line, but it's also letting you tap into the big tank (laughs) easily.
3: Right. And in the long run, I think, given the technology of splice-in, splice-out, which allows you to combine channel management and on-chain transactions, or submarine swaps, where you're doing an atomic swap between on-chain and off-chain funds, you will be able, quite easily, to send a lightning payment in order to pay someone with a Bitcoin address using a submarine swap. And therefore, why would you even need to have any funds that are not in channels? And I think where we're going is this. Other than funds that you have in cold storage, for purely very, very long-term cold storage, Any funds you want to have in a hot wallet for spending, whether that's an operational wallet for a business or a hot wallet on a mobile for any regular user for retail use, there is no reason to have any of those funds outside of a channel. In fact, you want all of those funds to be in a channel at all times. You can still make payments to a Bitcoin address through a submarine swap. And you get the additional advantage that you can engage all of those funds in Lightning payments.
2: Assuming for a second that you had people who you wanted to pay or wanted to receive payment from on the Lightning network, what do you think about this half a percent fee? I feel like for me, it probably is not a barrier because compared to any other method that I would use for transfers, it still is really, really cheap. And if it takes out some of that sort of complexity that I might screw up, which as Jonathan mentioned earlier, you know, like, The anxiety that's associated with being truly responsible for your money, that can get to be pretty meaningful over time. And almost, you know, I know some people who have kind of like a form of PTSD as a result of dealing with cryptocurrency for sort of as long as they have and for screwing up enough times that, you know, they've become kind of gun shy about it at times. So I mean, like, what do you think of that half a point fee? Because obviously it's going to get lower, but even where it is now, is it high?
1: I think on small transactions, it becomes meaningless. But beyond a certain size. Yeah, then it starts to get significant. I mean, you're probably going to go on chain.
2: Do you have an idea of what that size would be for you?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, I would say when you get beyond maybe like $10. Interesting. I'm just guessing. <laughs> I haven't really done the math.
0: You know, for me, it's probably hundreds of dollars, right? I can speak, at least for myself, pretty authoritatively because I use Bitcoin transactionally. Maybe about a dozen or two dozen times a week through the gift app and also just through buying like little digital trinkets. So basically for lunch and breakfast, I buy a gift card with Bitcoin and then immediately spend it all to buy something. And that's typically five to $15. And the fees end up being a full Bitcoin transaction and then whatever the gift card takes. So sometimes I end up paying like 10% or 5% of a fee just because I'm like, Hey, I decided three seconds ago, I want food. I walked into the store and I got food and I want to spend Bitcoin.
1: Jonathan eats Bitcoin for breakfast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I eat Bitcoin multiple times a month. Low carb Bitcoin. (laughs) So, just in terms of ease of access and just actually being able to eat your money, which is what money is fundamentally for, it's so we can pretend that this piece of paper isn't food but turns into food when we need it. I'm okay with 10% fees under $20 just as a function of give me my food now. And I think that the more you look at people who use payments transactionally, like in their daily lives, the more you'll find that half a percent is a steal if I could pay that instead.
3: I think it also depends on what the on-chain fees are and what scenarios you're using it for. Lightning becomes particularly interesting in two applications. And these applications are great because one of them is for developed countries and the other one is for Underdeveloped countries or developing countries. In developing countries, one of the fascinating things you can do with Lightning is create an almost closed-looped economy within a small community. So if you have a number of Lightning wallets that are Lightning nodes and have a good enough mesh of channels between them, perhaps with one bridge node that bridges with bigger channels to the rest of the world, You can do a lot of intra-community transactions. So I buy eggs from Mary, Mary buys chicken feed from Joe, et cetera, et cetera, in a small interconnected community. And at that point, you've got very small transactions for people earning less than a dollar a day and transacting directly in goods. And you can do that very, very nicely with Lightning Network. So for closed economy, closed loop. And the other one is in the developed world, the types of microtransactions that are involved in things like games and content consumption, intangible goods that are delivered online where the cost of delivering the good is less than a dollar and an on-chain payment doesn't really make sense. These are both applications you can't do today with anything other than cash in person. And so from that perspective, 0.5% in fees, isn't a huge problem, especially if you compare it to on-chain fees. But again, I think this is just a starting point. I don't think this really is an ongoing consideration. Keep in mind that once you open an incoming channel using this 0.5%, when you make a payment out over that channel and send the balance in the other way, you don't need to open it again. The next time, that channel is still available for you to use. So it really reflects the initial channel instance and not the ongoing use of the channel. So you're not paying 0.5% on every transaction, only on the initial open.
0: I actually take the opposite takeaway from this, which is I think fees are going to increase because I think that as we look at what it takes to provide as a service to users in order to engage in Lightning, more and more service add-ons are going to be required to get that feature complete requirement. And if users are already okay with three or 5% fees on, you know, sub hundred dollar transactions, that leaves a lot of room for future companies to look at how could I provide a service to make lightning a more mature offering and then just increase the fees corresponding to that. And so I actually think that it's not so much that this is a bad thing, but just a sign of how much extra room we have in creating a more feature robust solution that users are okay with a traditional cost for already.
2: Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for a quick sponsored minute. Matt, Purse's mission since 2014 has been making Bitcoin useful. How are you guys doing that?
0: Thanks, Adam. Well, with Purse.io, you can buy anything on Amazon using your Bitcoin, just like real money. Since 2014, we've saved Purse users millions of dollars, and this year we have a new Chrome extension that you can add to your browser. So whenever you're shopping on Amazon, any Amazon product page will have a new little button that pops up and you can add that product to your purse shopping cart instead of your Amazon shopping cart and buy that item with your Bitcoin, usually for huge
2: discounts, 15 to 20% or more. You know, since we recently started selling Let's Talk Bitcoin t-shirts, I've noticed actually that a lot of people, a surprising number of people are using credit cards to pay for those instead of Bitcoin. And when I've asked them, it's, they say it's because the value of spending it isn't worth it relative to the difficulty of, you know, getting it out of cold storage and all of that. So it seems like the discount is actually a somewhat important part of really giving people a reason to spend Bitcoin. Yeah, we find offering discounts to Bitcoin holders incentivizes them to bust out that hot wallet and actually use their Bitcoin like it's real money. To start saving today, visit purse.io or see the links in the show
1: notes. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Why just send the crypto and blockchain memes you love to your friends when you can wear them? Find your favorites at the online A. Antonop shop. Brought to you by Bitcoin and Open Blockchain's educator, Andreas M. Antonopoulos. From t-shirts and sweatshirts to beanies, baby bibs, onesies, and more, your favorite memes have come to life. Browse the A-N-T-O-N-O-P shop today. Pay in crypto? Ships worldwide. Shop now at aantanop.io slash shop. That's A-N-T-O-N-O-P.io slash shop.
2: So there's another approach out there trying to solve basically the same problem. The Zap wallet takes a different approach to onboarding new users. Their aim is for users to be able to use their debit cards to have Bitcoin sent to them on the Lightning Network, even when they have a fresh wallet that has no channels, as we've been discussing. Then the user has the ability to make payments on the Lightning Network. The creator of Zap, Jack Mallers, has started this new service, which he calls Olympus. The service is standalone and can be implemented by other Lightning wallets, with there being no requirement for the particular Lightning wallet that wants to use and can be implemented by other Lightning wallets. Quoting from the Zap blog on what Olympus is, quote, Olympus is an external service that clients make requests to. The service is responsible for the hard parts of the process, onboarding users, processing payments, managing market risk, streaming quotes, and delivering bitcoins. End quote. Once payment has been received by Olympus, it will then open a turbo channel to the user with the pushed amount that they have just purchased with their debit card. With the use of a turbo channel, the user is able to spend right away. Jack Mallers has also stated that in the future, Olympus will not just push the amount to the user, but will also have some funds on their end of the channel. The amount to be staked by Olympus will vary kind of depending on the user's usage. Currently, Olympus is in beta and available to only a select few users in the United States with plans to roll it out publicly and eventually to other countries. A couple of points before we start this discussion. Zap is non custodial. Zap is available for Windows, Linux, Mac, and mobile on both iOS and Android. Zap can connect through a remote node on mobile. On desktop, it offers a remote node and its own Neutrino node. Using Zap Wallet itself does not require KYC, AML, or kind of anti money laundering, big disclosures of who you are and information. But to use the Olympic service, you do need to go through those steps. And then Zap has the ability to send a version of their wallet that doesn't contain the Olympus feature again to kind of remove the need to do the KYC, but also to remove sort of the advantages that it kind of brings in. So in that description, there's this reference to turbo channels. And what is a turbo channel, right? It's actually this relatively new thing that as far as I can tell, and I hope I'm not incorrectly crediting, bitrefill.com came up with, with what they're calling Thor turbo channels. And it says, What is a turbo channel? We're pleased to announce a new version of our Thor Lightning Channel service utilizing a new feature called Turbo Channels. Turbo Channels allow anyone to instantly access the Lightning Network through bit refills nodes with a Bitcoin balance that is immediately spendable, removing any wait time associated with transaction confirmations. So basically the funds are in your channel and you can spend them right away. And this removes the 60 plus potential minute wait times where you typically would have to wait for two confirmations before you actually can use the service. So Andreas, what do you think about that? How does that compare against the way that channels happen now?
3: Basically, when you open a channel, you specify how much balance is going to be on each side of the channel. And when lightning first started, channels were one-sided, meaning that the person who opened the channel had balance on their side and the other person had zero. In recent developments, you can now open symmetric channels where the two parties contribute funds on either side of the channel. So let's say you, Adam, and I are opening a channel between us. You put in half a Bitcoin, I put in half a Bitcoin, and we start the channel, meaning we conduct the multi-sig transaction to lock the funds in, recognizing that there's half a Bitcoin on each side sourced from our corresponding wallets. The reason it's hard to do that is because if I just open a channel to you and put balance only on my end, then that transaction is one I can sign myself because it's only consuming my Bitcoin inputs. If we want to sign a transaction where we put balance on both sides of the channel, that's kind of like a coin join. If you think about it, effectively, we have to do this collaboration where I have to send you a partially signed transaction. You have to then add your input to it and sign it and send it back. So we both need to sign the input side of that transaction to put balance on both sides. A push channel is where I create a channel with balance on my end, but then in the creation, I tell it to move some of that balance to your end when the channel is created. And that's the kind of thing you would do if you're withdrawing from an exchange or in this case, Olympus service, which is again, a kind of exchange. So let's say Adam you were buying $10 worth of Bitcoin. So maybe the Olympus server would open a $12 channel towards your node after they've billed you $10 from your debit card. And then they'll push $10 to your side of the channel so that now it's your balance. And they'll still leave $2 on their side of the channel so you can receive some more incoming payments if you need to. And now you have some balance on both sides. So in the current Lightning user experience, when you first fund your Lightning wallet, you have an on-chain balance in Bitcoin, and now you want to open a channel. Opening a channel is basically conducting or constructing a two-of-two two multisig with your channel peer and putting money into that channel. So in order for that channel to be open, it takes three to six confirmations depending on the configuration of your Lightning wallet. And therefore, that takes time, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, however much time to open your first channel. You can't do a Lightning transaction until you've opened your first channel. And so what I understand Thor turbo channels to be, or turbo channels in general, I think they're basically channels that are not opened on chain, but instead where the channel counterparty commits the balance on their end and gives you some time to open the actual channel with them. It's almost like a credit, like a line of credit on the Lightning Network.
2: That's right. And if you go to bitrefill.com and you look at this, you can actually, as they say, buy a turbo channel. And when you click that button, it takes you to an interface where it says, would you like to buy 50,000 satoshis worth of instant access? And then it sends you an invoice where you pay. So if you're buying 500,000 satoshis, then that comes to 0.00532 Bitcoin. So there's a little bit of a premium on top, but you get
3: access to it instantly. This is the fascinating thing that's happening on Lightning. Once you start working in the Lightning environment, you notice that because the kind of innovation you can do on the peer to peer Lightning network is not bound by marching and locks by consensus rules, but you have a base interoperability layer and then you can add new capabilities. And as long as the other peer you're working with can do those capabilities, you don't need to get everybody to upgrade simultaneously. The pace of innovation is moving so fast. It's very difficult to keep up. I'm constantly finding out about things that I didn't know existed. And what's interesting is that a lot of these innovations go directly to the user experience. So all of the onboarding difficulties and conceptual difficulties that exist in Lightning's user experience are being fixed by all of these various developments in the protocol. And some of those are services that you pay a bit extra for. And some of these are free services or just tweaks between different pairs of wallets.
2: Olympus is not attached to the Zap wallet. It is a service that any wallet that wants this sort of compatibility or wants this sort of ease of use, but doesn't necessarily want to set up kind of all of the infrastructure to provide it, can integrate it. This contrasts with what we were talking about with Phoenix, where really it's like an entire solution, but it's built into the wallet in a way where you would have to use the wallet in order to do that. Obviously, there are advantages and kind of disadvantages to each. But do you think that this becomes the normal way that these sorts of services get rolled out? Or is this kind of like a one-off?
3: I think this is exactly the way that these services are rolled out. Maybe at first you see this as a fully managed, integrated, single-stack service that's offered by a single provider. But in the long term, I think the real magic happens where you have programmable interfaces that can be used to purchase additional services and capabilities for your wallet, such as funding these channels or using an exchange that funds a Lightning channel. And all of these other things like the Olympus service demonstrates where you can standardize on a protocol that then your lightning wallet can speak directly to purchase the service. And I think that's a much better approach because you end up with a marketplace for these services and you can start competing on fees and really drive the price to the actual cost of providing this service.
2: So the other kind of question that I have here is. How impactful is this to privacy within these systems? Because Olympus requires KYC AML, so you're basically disclosing a lot of personal information about your identity in order to use that kind of ease of use feature. And then on the other side, the Phoenix wallet kind of does its solution by making it so you mandatorily must route through one of the nodes that's owned by their company as kind of like a first hop. So just from like a privacy perspective, what are the implications of having an AML KYC service that actually is associated with a Lightning Network wallet? Do we still have the privacy advantages and kind of the implicit coin join that happens there? And then on the other side, does it matter if a user has to go through a node that is owned by the company that runs the wallet? Are there any privacy implications on that?
3: There are some privacy implications, certainly, but they're still better than the corresponding privacy implications of on-chain transactions. So even if you have to go through somebody else's node as your first node, that will then be able to see all of the payments that you're initiating. But that node will still not be able to see the endpoint of these payments because the pathfinding and routing should still be done on your own mobile wallet and in between it's onion routed. So even though you're using that intermediate node as a routing node, it doesn't know what the destination is. It only knows what the next hop that you've selected is in that route. And it doesn't even know how long that route is. So it can see some of the information. It can see that you initiated a payment. It doesn't know where that payment is going. Which again is a massive improvement over on-chain transactions or even more so over custodial on-chain transactions where the provider sees everything. However, it does increase the ability of that intermediary node to censor you, and they can effectively shut down your ability to do transactions from that wallet, at least, and then you'd have to wait the time period to close your channels and get your funds back on-chain using the trustless nature of the Lightning Network. But you still could get temporarily censored by that intermediary node. But again, still better than a custodial on-chain solution where not only do you get censored by the custodian, but effectively they can also take your money.
2: So then I think I can answer my own question about the AML KYC question, which is that, yes, it has implications, but so long as you're not making single hop payments, then there still doesn't appear to be a way to directly connect that. Although now they do know who you are. That's the kind of big difference, obviously, between the Phoenix approach and the approach with Olympus is that in Phoenix, ultimately you're paying a fee, but there's no kind of identity information that's implicit in that process. Whereas to use Olympus, you necessarily have some
3: association there.
1: Yeah, that's a common thing. Pay with your privacy or pay with some money.
3: Yeah, on the Lightning Network, I think we're also going to see a range of privacy options and a range of custody options and a range of trust options. And people are going to go somewhere on that spectrum. Some people are going to go for custodial, trusted third party and not very private solutions. You can have elements within the Lightning Network that are going to be highly centralized, highly custodial, highly mediated, censorable, etc. They're still going to be better than the equivalent type of centralized nodes on the on-chain systems, but they're not going to be as good as the other end of the range where you can have a Tor node that runs your own Lightning node, your own Bitcoin node, and your own Lightning wallet, and does onion routing with a non-KYC wallet that you control. So people are going to have the entire range, and I think we're going to see that emergence of these. Privacy control and censorship spectrum emerge on Lightning, just like any other network.
1: Yeah. And that's ultimately good because then people can make the choice themselves of how far they want to go up the stairs. One final thought, I guess, just to keep this in perspective. Obviously, we're still really, really early with the uses of Lightning and the development of this technology. And it's exciting. But before the show, I was just thinking, I haven't just searched for Lightning in a while. I'd like to see what's out there, you know, what comes up. So I did a quick Google search and I just typed in Lightning because I was thinking, okay, this is going to give me Lightning wallets and state of the technology. But what comes up is like Salesforce and GNU Lightning library assembly. And even like the calendar from Mozilla, which is like an add-on for Thunderbird that I didn't even know was still a thing. (laughs) I used to use that, (laughs) but I haven't used it in a while. So I think like if you search lightning wallets or lightning cryptocurrency or something like it's going to be different, obviously, but there's a long way to go before this is a household thing. And I like lightning. It's a good name. It kind of describes what it does, but we still have a long way to go before this is something that a lot of people are using.
2: Yeah, well, we constantly live in the land of the niche of the niche of the niche of the niche, right?
1: (laughs)
3: At this point in the history of this technology, if you held a conference, it would still get less attendance than the Poughkeepsie Furry Convention.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Have you been to the Poughkeepsie Furry Convention? No comment?
3: (laughs) You'll never know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Let's Talk Bitcoin, episode 424. A big thanks to our sponsors, Purse.io, Brave.com, and etoro.com. You can find new episodes of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show every Sunday on the new Coindesk podcast network at coindesk.com, the LTB network at letstalkbitcoin.com, or you can subscribe directly to the show at ltbshow.com. Today's discussion topic was produced by James and featured Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Trey Santanopoulos and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Jonas and featured music by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. And a quick announcement, we are no longer looking for associate producers, who until this episode we'd been referring to as junior producers, but next we'll be looking for several correspondents who want to research and produce segments, solo or with me, for the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. I'll put out a more formal announcement next month, but if any longtime listeners have been waiting for this sort of opportunity to get not just your perspective as a producer, but your work itself featured on the show, send an email to adam at ltbshow.com. No experience is required, and we look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back next Sunday with episode 425 of the Let's Talk Bitcoin Show. And we'll see you then.
1: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too.
0: Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro.